Welcome, everybody, to the Faculty Podcast, brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm president, professor of Old Testament here, and I'm joined by my colleagues, Dr. Peter Lee, professor of Old Testament, uh, Dr. Grace Utanto, systematic theologian par excellence, and Dr. Tommy Keene, professor of New Testament here. And we are continuing on in our series dealing with... Peter, you want to do it? What, what, what's the series that we're doing now? Tough text. Tough text. I don't think he's that wasn't consistent. Right. No. I, I, he, he does it different every time. He does. That's true. We've got to stop relying on him. That's true. To, That's true. To jingle. Yeah, you kind of actually you put the I'm accent sorry, on the wrong. Because you started out with, with tough texts. Yeah, I know. I'm, I apologize. And you did that, you know, the, <laughs> you know, Clara, my wife, complains about my inconsistency as well. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well. <laughs> she wants stability. We need to work on that. Predictability. She wants predictability. Foundation. Okay. Yeah. Totally right. Fair enough. She wants to know what to expect, you know. As we continue on with our tough text series, we're dealing with one that is apropos of the season, that is incarnation. Okay. Incarnation, at the end of the day, is a tough text, right? This is a tough idea. It's a tough topic. Um, it's got tough text revolving around it. We could pull out Philippians 2. We could pull out a handful of texts. I think today we're going to look at Matthew uh, 1, 18 to 23 as the, the sort of locus for this tough topic. And uh, we're going to talk about it afterwards. But I'm reminded of how difficult this, this text is because it reminds me of this story that happened to me uh, when I was invited long ago to go speak to a, a group in a college down in Florida, and it was a inner interfaith group, and we were supposed to be talking about, in in somewhat friend in a friendly manner, debating, uh, you know, theology and religion and the different truth claims of these religions. And and I went into this group, um, even though it was hosted, I think, by the RUF uh, at the university. Uh, when we got into the group, it was a ballroom filled with about 150 people, 85 percent of whom were Muslim. Okay. And it was, it was a great, interesting conversation. It was supposed to be me. And there was a, a, a head of the Islamic center in the area and a, and a rabbi. And we were all talking about our different religions. And, and my, my whole goal in there was if the most, you know, the most amount of time I can get us to talk about Jesus is, is how I'm going to va- evaluate, uh, you know, this, this event, how much can we talk about Jesus? So I tried to just bring it back to Jesus. And I remember at one point up there, we were, we were kind of walking through the apostles creed and um, at least that's what I was doing and, you know, bringing them along. And at one point I said the line, you have to understand Jesus is 100 percent God and he's 100 percent man. Right. And, and as I said that kind of thinking of a Western audience who would be aware of this idea, whether they accept it or not, was suddenly just struck with this huge outroar, you know, outcry from the audience of predominantly Muslim students <laughs> at this idea that God could, someone could be a hundred percent God and a hundred percent man, you know, and it struck me again at how, how audacious that claim is that the gospel makes, right? Of the, who the person of Jesus is and what his dual natures are. And that actually, at the end of the day is a question of the incarnation. Yeah. How can these things be? So let's go ahead and start, let's dive into it, but we want to have a text that we work out of. So we're going to start with Matthew chapter one, verse 18 through 23. All righty, let me uh, read this passage uh, passage for us here, Matthew 1, 18 to 23. And it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. 
When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. All right. Quite a text. There's a lot going on there. There's a lot to talk about. Indeed. So, Dr. Keene. No, right. As our our resident New Testament professor who Mm -hmm. who can just rattle off answers to tough text uh, off the top of his head. Right. Introduce us. Walk us through this. What's important here? I mean, yeah, there's a couple of reasons why this is tough. It's on the one hand, it's very common. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is this is one of those Bible stories that is so familiar to us that we just don't even you know see some of the unique features anymore. Um, we're used to right. it being enacted in plays and um, and you know nativity scenes, and we put it out on our mantles and all that kind of stuff. So it it seems so familiar that it's lost some of its surprise. But I think mm-hmm. to your point earlier, it's theologically audacious yeah. that God that Jesus would be. 100% God, 100% man. The incarnate, the true doctrine of the incarnation is very um, uh, mysterious. Mm-hmm. And then historically, we've got a lot of things to talk about. You right. know, so uh, you you see it in this text. You know, Joseph is responding in certain kinds of ways that are culturally appropriate, mm-hmm. and and yet distant from our expectations uh, that we we get a different presentation of the incarnation in Matthew than we do in Luke and so a lot of people ask why so many differences mm-hmm. um, in those two texts and do all of the kind of events line up and that kind of stuff so historically and theologically there's a lot to talk and exegetically you know the right. translation of Isaiah there that we have in Matthew um, is one way of doing it, and some will point out that you could also translate it differently, and it has mm-hmm. a different kind of sense then. So lots of, as you said, lots to talk about. Yeah. So where should we start? Okay. With, with, all, with all the things to talk about. <laughs> this is a game of hot potato, right? <laughs> I mean, I think we should start with the solution, well, my, which I is mean, systematic my I, I want to just start talking about Isaiah 7 right away, but that actually doesn't get at the incarnation per se, right? That gets at this one part about it, right? which we can come back around to. We, that might even deserve a, a tough text episode on its own. Right. But there's a lot to say there. One thing we can say is that as we're reading this, this is not a normal birth. Mm-hmm. Why? Not just because they're reading Isaiah 7 and they're kind of forcing Isaiah 7's grid onto this event, but look at what, how Joseph responds. I think it's interesting, by the way. He, he's a just man, so he's not looking to shame her. He could have. He could have, could have thrown her out and said, look, she's, you know, she's, she's unclean for me or something right. like that. Right. But notice he's just. He wants it to be quiet. But that also tells us his response is such that he's saying this is not this is not because of us. This isn't something we did to bring about this conception, mm. right? So there's something else going on right away, immediately there. 
you realize there's something that's inexplicable to the characters on the scene. And you see that in Joseph's reaction. And I think yeah. it points to the authenticity of, of the text itself, yeah. that yeah. not everybody's like, oh, of course, you know, yeah. which is what you see in, in mythological right. literature. Uh, so often critics will look at this text and say, oh, this is just Greek mythology Christianized or something like that. And, uh, but actually, it doesn't follow the form of mythological literature because everybody's surprised and reacts the way surprised people would would. yeah Yeah. you know it's very authentic and you have to fill in the gaps right why is joseph uh want to put away uh, mary well because he obviously doesn't believe her yeah you know we have to fill in the kind of narrative gaps there but it takes the intervention of god to persuade joseph no mary's got it right and uh, and we don't get to see mary's conversation as vividly in Matthew as we do in Luke, but mm-hmm. those things are, are are happening in the background, and it all points to, I think, the authenticity of, of this narrative. Yeah, absolutely. Joseph, working with all of his capacity, does not know how she could be pregnant. It, right. it assumes it must be something yeah, else. He right. appeals to a naturalistic explanation. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, again, very reasonable, and there's no Old Testament reason why he shouldn't do this. Right which maybe gets us into the Isaiah passage, but this is unprecedented. Right. And Isaiah's right. prophecy is unprecedented. This is not something that is even in the hands of God, yeah. an expectation that would happen. Right. So the just to, to dabble into Isaiah yeah. 7 for a minute while we're there, um, yeah, there's a lot of stories of miraculous births in the Old Testament. There's a lot of people we have, we have um, you know, uh, the wife of Manoah with Samson. You know, angel comes, declares you're going to have a son. He's going to begin the deliverance of Israel. Sign child. Right. You have Hannah's birth of Samuel. Right. She's, Isaac, she's barren. Right. Yeah. Right. 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 We had Isaac. Right. We can go all the way back to Isaac. Okay. And some might even say Abel or, or Seth, rather. You know, but but Isaac is clearly one. We have a barren wife who's right. given a child. However, it's not a virgin. You know, there's not a virgin birth aspect there. It's that the Lord is blessing with fertility. Um, Hannah's song celebrates that uh you know with the the anticipating the birth of samuel we see that in psalm 113 we see that elsewhere this idea that one of the ways god shows his blessings you know to men is in crops and in warfare and he shows his blessing to women by their industriousness and childbirth you know that's that's kind of a common theme in the old testament however we do have this passage that's quite interesting going back to isaiah 7 Okay, and Isaiah seven is, of course, the story where uh, Isaiah is um, uh, you know, confronting Ahaz about uh, the threat of the northern kingdom and Aram, Aram coming down and threatening Judah. Ahaz is the king of Judah. He's being threatened, and he's resisted going into this uh, coalition with the northern kingdom and Aram against Assyria. Okay, sorry, this is all kind of complicated, but you have to understand why this is going on. Um, If we read Kings, we find out the reason why he's not going into the coalition is because he's already made a deal with Assyria. He's got kind of a side hustle going on. (laughs) And they know that, the northern kingdom and Aram, and so they say, we're going to kill you, Ahaz, and we're going to establish our own puppet king who's going to do what we want instead of what you want to do. And um, Ahaz is not afraid because he trusts in Assyria. And that actually explains the background to what's going on with Isaiah in Isaiah 7.14. He goes out to Ahaz and he says, don't be afraid. The Lord will wipe out your enemies, the northern kingdom and Aram. 
And Ahaz says, don't worry, I'm not afraid. But he's not afraid not because he trusts in the Lord. It's because he's trusting in Assyria. And, a, and, and, and this comes out because Isaiah says, hey, show me, uh, ask the Lord a sign, and he'll give you a sign that this victory is sure and that it's near, too. I think this is important. It's a near sign, right, that, right. that the victory will happen against these enemies. And Ahaz says, I don't need a sign. But again, it's not because he's trusting. You know, he acts, he, he hypocritically says, why would I test the Lord? But that's not what's going on. He's actually trusting in Assyria. So Isaiah gets angry and says, the Lord's going to give you a sign whether or not you ask mm -hmm. for one. Behold, and then that's where we get our passage yeah. today. The virgin will bear a son. Okay. Now that, that, that term there, virgin, um, can be translated, as many have said, it can be translated young maid. It is translated that way. As a matter of fact, the, 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 the male form of that is often used just to talk about young men. Mm. Um, so it's possible that that's what it's me it means. It's interesting that in the Septuagint translation, that word is a bit more decisive. Um, uh, I think Parthenos, if mm -hmm. I remember correctly. Yep, that's right. And um, that's a little bit more decisive as virgin. Uh, there is a word that is more distinctly virgin in, in Hebrew, batula, that is not used. Batula, excuse me. I got my fellow <laughs> Hebrew colleague next to me. If, I if you're going to use Hebrew, say it right. Might for as well put sakes. the accent on the right syllable. Um, but <laughs> in any case, yeah, the, uh, uh, you know, he's, he, 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 th there, there's something going on here. We have to ask the question, why clarify this phrase, uh, Alma, right? Um, if it doesn't have value, okay? So we have to keep, you know, what, what's the value of it in the, in the passage? So what actually happens in this passage is that we see that this Emmanuel sign child will mark the destruction of Aram in the northern kingdom, okay? But then in the very next chapter, chapter 8, it says, And so I went to the prophetess, and she conceived a son. So there we have kind of normal conception. And his name, he's told, name this sign, this child who you'll conceive of the prophetess, Maharshalal Hashbaz, you know, quick to the quick to the plunder, fast to the prey. And what is he talking about? The coming judgment against the northern kingdom and Aram. And then we get a prophecy about how this child, like the Emmanuel child, before they reach a certain age, will mark before they reach a certain age of majority, eating the curds and, and, and you know, knowing good and wrong, good and evil. Um, before they reach that age, the northern kingdom in Assyria or in Aram will fall. Okay, I know I'm throwing a lot of information. Um, at the very end of that prophecy about Maharshala Hashbaz, go back and read it. This is in chapter 8 of Isaiah. The whole prophecy ends with, O Emmanuel. And if you're talking to a Jewish friend, they'll say, clearly, the child that the virgin would have is Maharshala Hashbaz. It's right. prophecy and fulfillment right there in front of your eyes. Um, we do have to say that is also the plain reading. Okay, that's the plain reading of the text. Okay, to, to go another way with that in light of Matthew, you'd have to say, well, that one passage about the virgin is an eschatological promise and everything else is about Aram and the northern kingdom. But that one little, you know, 714A, I think mm -hmm. it is, you know, is about the Messiah. And that actually interesting is kind of what John Calvin does, because I think he's I don't think he has all the tools to yeah. interpret this that, that we actually have today in terms of just, um, and Calvin's an ex excellent exegete, but I think he gets this one wrong, okay? Um, the other way to interpret this is that the prophet is saying, here the virgin will have a child. Remember, he's emphasizing the near term. Here she is. She's right here. She's going to have a child before that child gets to the age of majority, 13 or so. Northern Kingdom and, and Aram are going to fall. And that's exactly what happens. This prophecy or 
the uh, Syrian Israelite coalition is in 734 and Samaria falls by 722. That's within 12 years. It actually fits the prophecy. Mm-hmm. It all kind of lines up nicely. Mm-hmm. Okay. And some people say, well, she's not a virgin. It's not a miraculous virgin birth. And I would actually argue in that case, he's not saying it's a miraculous birth. Right. He's saying here she is. Young woman. And then she goes either. Well, so he has to think either she's a virgin and this is a second wife because we know that Isaiah okay. already has a wife. This is a second wife, perhaps, um, or something else is going, or this is, should be translated young woman. Okay. But what's, what's important there is that you're getting a miraculous heavenly initiated birth, uh, creating a sign child. Okay. For a coming thing. And I would actually argue Isaiah's audience would be thinking about Samson and Samuel. They'd say, yeah, we've seen this before. This has happened. A person will be born. And when he's born, it's going to initiate the next phase in God's work. Samson begins the deliverance of Israel. Samuel, it says, will bring the deliverance of Israel. And that that makes sense because there's precedence historical yeah. precedents in the Old Testament for reading a supernatural birth in that kind. Con- That's that right. Kind. And so it creates a type. Okay, so then what's Matthew doing with it? Is Matthew playing fast and loose with Isaiah 7? That's what the critical scholar, the skeptical yeah. scholar might say. I would actually argue what's going on here is that, as we often see between the old and the new, you're seeing ordinary promise, promise extravagant fulfillment. Okay? Mm-hmm. Jesus said, you know, Ezekiel says, wait for the temple. There's going to be a new temple. It's going to be rebuilt. Jesus says, I'm the temple, and now you're the temple spreading over the face of yep. the earth. It's global. It's cosmic, whereas it was just a building in the Old Testament. Right. It's extravagant, expansive fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. Okay, we looked for a king who would hold the name of the Lord. And then what do we get? We get a king who is the Lord. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's, again, extravagant fulfillment. Gentiles flood in where Gentiles used to trickle into the people of God. So with that said, Jesus is sign child, but he's an extravagant, expansive fulfillment of what of that type that is sign child. Right. And that pattern of redemptive yeah. history. Mm-hmm. And he, how does, how does Matthew make that point? He lays hold on this, to this word virgin. Cause he says it's, she had a virgin birth and this is a new sign child. And he's yeah. marking the deliverance of his people from their enemies. And, and Emmanuel, like, like, you know, Deborah leading the armies out in battle saying, go, don't you know the Lord goes with you? That's a battle cry. Emmanuel is a battle cry. He's with us. Emmanuel is with us, and here's the sign child, and he's linking it, the virgin birth, to this, to this broader corpus of, of types that mm-hmm. is the sign child, mm-hmm. often accompanied with some kind of special birth arrangement. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it calls into question whether or not she was really a virgin. I don't think, I don't think they started with Isaiah and then misapplied it and created this right. story about virgin right. births. The virgin birth happens, and he is linking it in with this sign child typology that we see in the Old Testament. Which is non-arbitrary. It's not like yeah. you know, God promised you a sign, and then he get you know, and the sign itself is arbitrary. It's built yeah. into the structure of redemptive history. This kind of thing happens when yep. God is on the move, yep. and we're seeing it happen. And it, there is a naturalness to expecting that this climactic fulfillment, the final fulfillment of the pattern, the last iteration in the pattern, would be all the more glorious, all the more, glorious. All the more impossible. Uh, absolutely. And to your to your point about the you know in in from a redemptive historical point of view, it's kind of unnecessary for mm-hmm. Mary to be an actual virgin. Yeah. Okay, we, we could fulfill the promise. Fulfill yeah, we don't, we the don't need that in our theology, right? Not that we we have doctrine to explain it and to, right. and to understand it, but we don't need it. 
we don't and and Mark is able to present the gospel of Jesus Christ without a birth narrative. Right. John gives us no birth narrative. He gives us theology, poetic theology instead, but he gives us no birth narrative. And and it's striking that you know even in as we move on to church history, I'm going to step a little bit on your toes, Gray, but you correct you you can clean me up. Um, if we go through church history and kind of trace the path to to Chalcedon, 100% God, 100% man is the hardest solution to the possible problem. Yeah, there, right. there are ways to make this more palatable. Mm, yeah. There are ways to, for Matthew to present the gospel of Jesus Christ that would be more palatable to us. Right. A, a divinization makes more sense if you're from a Greek perspective. Uh, something more like yeah. a, a, a human king, yeah. a divinely anointed human king makes more sense from a Jewish perspective. There's the spirit embodies or something right. like that in, right. or infills. Right. Yeah. Philosophically, as we move into church history, there are easier solutions mm-hmm. that, that would have been easier in the sense of more palatable to Greeks, uh, G- Greek philosophical traditions. And yet the Christian church chose the hardest yeah. possible solution. And I think for two reasons. One, because that's what happened. Right. And two, and maybe, Gray, you could speak to this, because it's necessary. It, yeah. it, it's necessary for the salvation that God has sought to accomplish, that Jesus be fully God. Yep. Yeah, well, I think you've got it right that the Chalcedonian formula was written in that way, and they chose the so-called hardest solution because there was scriptural pressure mm-hmm. on the Chalcedonian formula. Mm-hmm. They were not interested in just crafting something that logically made sense or was culturally more pliable or palatable to his hearers, but they were reflecting on what was happening, and they were reflecting on the Gospels, and also not just the Gospels, but the testimonies of Paul. I mean, alongside the Matthew passage, we can talk about Philippians 2, 5 to 11, right, which is really, really important that God, that Jesus Christ, who is the very form of God, took on um, the form of a servant. So the form of God, theou in the Greek there, talking about the divine nature, who took on a contingent human nature and became made into our likeness and he obeyed in that likeness mm. to the point of death on the cross, right? So there is the divine nature who is the person of the second person of the Trinity taking on this contingent human nature. So one of the things that I say in class is that when you met Jesus, what you meet is actually just the human nature, but who you meet at every point is the Son of God, the eternal incarnate Son. Mm. So if you ask the question, why was it necessary? Well, we would say that it's necessary that he be both divine and human because in his human nature, he has to be made like us because it is us who sinned. Mm -hmm. So he needed to take our place as our elder brother and who took on the same human nature as us because it was human beings who sinned. And so this is why the blood of lambs and goats could not take away um, our sin. But he had to be divine because... Only God had the authority to save, and only God could get the glory for salvation. Mm. It's the Jonah 2.9 principle, right? Salvation is of the Lord. If Jesus Christ was only human, we would be committing idolatry when we worshipped him for our salvation. We would be committing idolatry when we worshipped him as king. So the question that Chalcedon was trying to answer, and Nicaea was also trying to answer this by, by trying to say that he is, the son of God is of God, a very God in his divine nature, is to say, how can we believe in the Shema of Deuteronomy 6.4 and worship Jesus and not commit idolatry? That's one of the biggest questions. The Christians were very concerned to uphold monotheism, and they were very concerned in saying that when we worship Jesus, we're not compromising that monotheistic principle. 
it, it seems to, you know, if you really think about the logic of the Old Testament direction, um, I mean, you, we don't think of this as we read the Old Testament, but a Holy Spirit conception really logically is how this child has to come about. Because we know that, um, you know, through ordinary generation, that humanity is always going to have a sinful nature from Adam forward. Genetically. Genetically. I mean, how exactly that works right. out, and you know, it's it's yeah, a mean, whole geneti- level genetically of, in the non-scientific way. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. In the Old Testament yeah. way, that um, because of that, the the only way that you can actually have a priest king who is going to be adequately substitutionary requires a a Holy Spirit conception. So in, in many ways, we don't think of it this way, but the the New Testament is sort of taking the next step of where the Old Testament has been pushing us. So we have been reading about, you know, the Israelite kings have been, uh, you know, disasters. They were utter failures. Thus they go into exile. But the promise of a son of David is a good promise. You just need an ideal son of David who can hold the Deuteronomy, mm-hmm. the laws perfectly, which a human cannot do. Yeah. Thus, you need a, you know, the direction of the Old Testament is you need an ideal godly man, but we now realize what we really needed is a God-man, right. yeah. a, one conceived of the Holy Spirit. Right. So, mm-hmm. uh, so there does seem to be a, you know, the 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 Chalcedonian Creed is so fantastic because it just crystallizes the doctrine, but the doctrine is a logical. Yeah. kind of, you know, momentum, it, it's heading in that direction. Yeah. It kind of has to. I, I think that's really helpful. Like, cause so we can think about it as the, the incarnation is theologically necessary, but also it's, and maybe the way to put it is, it's historically or narratively fitting, given the kind of story that is embedded in creation. God made the world to be knit together around an Adamic king. And when we fell... He didn't ax that plan. The, the seat that of rule was always to have an Adamic shape to it. Mm. It was always to be a for a, it's for a human being. And God doesn't throw away the th- the throne and replace it with a new throne. It's it's a it's a human throne. So the king has to be human, but there's no human found fitting. So Revelation could be another passage. Revelation six could be another passage where we find where we find this kind of theme. No human is found f- fit for the throne because no f- human is perfect. So it has to be both human mm-hmm. and alien and an intrusion into mm-hmm. our our created order. Is, you, you want especially the, given you the fall. The, yeah. Is yeah. it okay? So yeah. is it is it is the is yeah because of the fall. Yeah. Right. Is the incarnation necessary for this also to be a last Adam? He needs to be representative of Adam, and so hence the genealogies, right? That right. we find, right. you know. Um, and yet, for him to be last Adam, he needs to not be made in the image of Adam, like post fall, post fall, yeah, right, like Cain and Abel, right, right, right. So he needs to be like Adam. He is knit of God. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Not. I mean. Not. I'm not. I'm talking about in his humanity. Mm-hmm. Is knit by God, an Adam who is the son of God. Right. right as the genealogy says, um, this is his, this is a, a part of his last Adam nature. Right. Is that he's not a separate species, so he can be right. federally head of humanity. Yep. Right. He's still a human. And yet he is outside of that genetic line to the fall. Right. Right. And so he was given, like Adam, a pre-fall 
unfallen human nature, yeah. right? And so uh, the reason why we have to qualify this as post-fall, that we needed to have a God-man to save us, and so we worship him as God and not commit idolatry when we do that post-fall because he's the one who's giving yeah. us yeah. salvation and only God can save, is that pre-fall, there was no need for salvation. Yeah. Um, so Adam would have obeyed if he had remained obedient to the covenant of works, and Adam would have led his posterity to a state of glory. But we wouldn't be worshiping Adam for that reason. Mm -hmm. We would just say well, we're grateful for him for sure, but Adam shows us who to worship, yeah. and he perfectly worshiped God. And so we'll let's worship God together with Adam. So pre-fall, um, Adam was not a savior figure, but he was a federal head, yeah. right? Um, but Jesus Christ is a savior figure, and how do we give credit to a mere human being for our salvation? That's, that's the, that's the yeah. question that we yeah. want to ask. Yeah. And I want to resist. There's some theologians out there who would say, well, because salvation is of the Lord and because Jesus is the way to salvation, there has to be an incarnation before the fall. And I would, yeah. that's, that view is called incarnation anyway. It's motivated by people who followed the theology of Karl Barth, but we would dispute that from an orthodox point of view. Interesting. Yeah. Um, I think we can also say, though, too, now being made in that pre-fall way, now we're kind of working backwards with the with the analogy with Adam, mm -hmm. made in that pre-fall pre state, and yet recognizing Jesus, though made with a pre-fall body, still looks forward to a resurrection body, which he receives, mm -hmm. that we can then also retrofit that and go back and, and assume that Adam and Eve in their pre-fall existence were still looking forward to something else. Yeah, they have, something, they have perishable bodies, according to 1 Corinthians right. 15, right. Yeah. right? So they... they through their obedience, mm -hmm. put on imper should have put on imperishability, whatever yeah. that is, mm -hmm. and then because they are imperishable, the world becomes imperishable. Yeah. So for the Christian, the devotional impact of that is that our hope is not to just reset and go to back garden. to the garden, but mm -hmm. we're looking yeah. forward to the thing that Adam would have looked forward to as well. Yeah. Had he remained obedient. Yeah. So God yeah. is continuing his work of redemption towards consummation, which was always the plan. And if and and then on a cosmic scale, we look yeah. to like Romans eight. All of creation groans yeah. for what? The revealing the of the right. sons of God. Yeah, oh, there you go. And so as <laughs> Jesus in has Christ. has yeah, yeah in Christ, Jesus has been raised and sits on the throne. Um, we are still in our ex in our period of exile, but we will be raised with Him, mm. and then creation will reach imperishability will reach glory Praise will no God. longer be the groaning but Praise the God. consummated Amen. kingdom yeah I think the incarnation what's interesting about it and it is a stumbling block to many um, the the idea of the incarnation though is not just a story as I've heard one uh, critic say well this is I, I'm glad I, I'm glad that I don't believe in the incarnation because it's only in one of the gospels or the virgin birth rather was right. his argument because it's only in one of the gospels so we don't have to deal with that but I'd actually argue the theology of the virgin birth and the incarnation, true incarnation, is everywhere throughout mm -hmm. the yeah. New Testament and even yeah. the Old. There's an yeah. anticipation. And the way I often put it is that the Hebrew Bible is making promises that it can't bear up. You know, it can't hold up, you know, under the weight of mm -hmm. because it's making these anticipations that when you actually start adding them all up, there's no way David is the fulfillment. There's no way Hezekiah is the fulfillment. There's no way Josiah or Zerubbabel can be the fulfillment. Mm -hmm. there, there's something that they're speaking of that goes beyond mm -hmm. what what they had seen in the world around them. Mm -hmm. And 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 we see that extravagant fulfillment in Christ. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's how I read Revelation 5, too, is that you've got this grand parade of, of atoms. Mm-hmm. 
this pot who can sit in the seat and none is and John weeps because mm. none are found worthy yeah. to sit in, into this in the seat until they until God himself yeah the you know the lion himself comes and when the lion appears mm-hmm. he looks like a lamb you yeah. know so you get that that kind of double image yep there okay, you look like you say something well, I was going to say, and this is stepping on your toes, this is why the book of Hebrews in chapter 9 and 10, and also Hebrews chapter 1, talks about yeah. Jesus as having sat down. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, I think that's exactly going on. In Whereas the all the priests yeah. keep standing up daily to offer sacrifices for themselves, and they cannot save. Yeah. The picture of enthronement, a priest king. Right. Yeah. So the son who upholds the world by the word of his power, who is very, God, you know, uh, same nature with God in Hebrews 1-2, receives a name, son, in Hebrews one four, so he, right. he becomes the the eternal king becomes the Adamic king in his enthrone in mm-hmm. incarnation and then resurrection enthronement. Yeah, so we're just as concerned to bring it back to the Muslim question. We're we're just as concerned as the Muslims to be radical monotheists, right? Mm-hmm. We wouldn't go into all this trouble unless we were concerned with monotheism. Yeah, we want to say with the Muslim, we only worship one God, and in fact, that God came down and without ceasing to be God, took up a human nature. And he is found in Jesus Christ. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, has, has experienced human life, can empathize with our temptations and right. in our struggles, can empathize with them or sympathize with them, right. as the author of Hebrews says. Which, by the way, I would argue is something that is lacking in Islam, is that you do not have a God who can sympathize right. in the same manner. As a matter yeah. of fact, he is wholly transcendent without in a way that eminence. is non-biblical. Right. So without the, the eminence, right, without yeah. the presence. Yeah. Another toughness of the text is the relationship to Luke, and we don't we don't have time to solve all of those problems, but maybe just a little trajectory yeah. of thought here. In Nuche, in a nutshell. <laughs> in, in, a, in, a, right, in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It's sometimes presented as a problem. I don't think it is. I think it's another sign of authenticity. It's it's presented as a problem because the synoptics seem to know each other. And so why does Luke, it's sometimes asked, completely avoid, completely avoid anything? There's no overlap between Luke's uh, narration and Matthew's narration, Mm -hmm. which is surprising given how the synoptics usually work. And the idea is that Luke doesn't know Matthew and is building off a completely different kind of mythological tradition. Mm -hmm. At least that's what the critics kind of present. I don't think that's the best way to, to read it. I think the best, the better avenue for reading it is that they're both, uh, maybe even Luke knows Matthew, they're both trying to do something different within nativity narratives. Matthew, um, is f- this fulfillment theme mm-hmm. is very central and particularly uh, a kind of Israel shape to that. So mm-hmm. out of Egypt I called my son. He's starting that, yeah, he's yeah. starting that proje- projection I, that he's going to continue on until chapter four or so. Right, new exodus, mm-hmm. which is to say mm-hmm. the redemption of, from the exile. The exile is presented as a new exodus in Hosea. And so you get this very Israel shape to the incarnation. Comes out of Egypt, he goes in, right. under the waters, and then God says, here's my son, whereas right. pri- previously Israel was firstborn son called to come out and worship him out of Egypt. Now here is my son. Yeah, even the you genealogies, know. you know, these yeah. these... The Matthew's genealogy ends with, you know, Abraham, goes mm-hmm. back all the way to Abraham. So you get a very Abrahamic shape to it. Um, three sets of, well, yeah. six sets of seven, and then Jesus is the seventh seven. So it's like the fulfillment of Israel is all there. Luke, by contrast, his genealogy 
goes backwards. It's in reverse from um, Matthews, and it goes Adam. son of Adam, son of God. Yeah. So he's very clearly trying to build this Adamic yeah. Christology. Um, they're so they they're theologically they're operating differently, I think, and they're trying to emphasize different things. Um, and then in terms of historicity, we get so many beautiful pictures in Luke of like Mary's internal thoughts and what mm-hmm. Elizabeth thought and and, and it, all those songs. Uh, yeah. yeah, it is a musical. Yeah, which is mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. <laughs> you oh, the angels, fantastic. you got Simeon, you got yeah. everybody singing yeah. the song. Yeah, and and the rest of Luke's not a musical, but mm-hmm. the the first three chapters is. No, I would. I think there is an interesting connection. There's a similarity if this sign child theory is right mm-hmm. that by yeah. being son of the virgin, then uh, he's a sign child like the sign childs of old, sign children of old. Um, Luke touches on the theme by having the Magnificat be so um, ha- echo so many of the themes yeah. of Hannah's song yeah. in right. First Samuel two. Yeah, I think that so and and the focus on the women. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, Elizabeth, yeah, Mary, thing, yeah. and Matthew is focused on Joseph. Yeah. So I think we're getting actually two different theologies, but also two different sets of testimony. Luke tells us he's interviewing people. He tells us he's going back to the eyewitnesses, and it's, I think, very probable that he has spoken to Elizabeth and Mary or spoken mm-hmm. to those who have heard from Elizabeth and Mary about their, how else would he know what Mary's thinking? Mm-hmm. Um, so we get the testimony from a different, from a different angle. That's I don't great. think there's any reason to think these are in conflict with one another, but mutually supporting and from mm-hmm. different points of yep. view. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's by, it, it gives us... Um, it gives us a well-rounded, mm-hmm. deep, three-dimensional picture of the mm-hmm. events, not merely a flat kind of one representation. Right, which we would expect if yeah. these things actually happen. Joseph's mm-hmm. experience is going to be different than Mary's, is going to be different than Elizabeth's and Zechariah's, yeah. et cetera. That's right. That's great. Mm. Friends, thanks for this conversation. It's always encouraging. And and uh, an encouraging and, and a major part of our Advent season now as we're anticipating Christmas coming up in December, on December 25th. And so we're going to hear these verses bandied about quite a bit. And it's good for us to think about not only the arguments for them and what they mean, but the implications in our lives as well. So I really appreciate this conversation. Thanks, guys, for being together this uh, morning for this discussion. Look forward to coming back together again in the future for more handling of Peter Lee. Tough tax. Great. Until then, take care. Sorry. Dude. <laughs>